8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk, and uh, it's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. And today, uh, we have the preeminent filmmaker, renowned filmmaker, Anand Singh, uh, who's just released his memoir uh, titled In Black and White, uh, where he details his journey as a storyteller, activist, and uh, just generally a great South African. Uh, and uh, he joins me on the line tonight to uh, talk about not just this book, uh, but his fascinating life story, uh, and uh, of course uh, his uh, infatuation with film. Anand, good evening and welcome. Hi, Abonga. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, Anand. I mean, maybe just for you know some of the people who might uh, uh, not be familiar with your work, and I suspect there will be very, very few. Um, talk to me about some of, the, I guess, for you, your memorable pieces of work, where you look back at it and you say, you know, uh, that particular production um, is, is one that I treasure for particular things. Uh, talk to us about that. And uh, before we get into who Anant is, your background and uh, your early life out in Springfield. Thank you. Um, you know, I think the, um, on the film side, production, um, you know, of Sarafina was um, uh, a historic moment. Madiba was still in prison when we started working on it, and um, he was released during that period. Um, it represented what he, uh, being in prison, and the liberation of him, um, and very much uh, the narrative of what was flowing in that story on on the in the musical uh, at the Market Theatre and around the world. Um, and then to be able to bring it to film was a very special time. And, of course, um, you know, there are over 100 films, but I think uh, uh, getting Mandela, made, Mandela Long Walk to Freedom made, uh, that took almost 25 years to do. So it um, was something I'm very proud of. Mm, mm. And we'll come back, I guess, when you say it took 25 years, because all of us sit in the cinema and just see you know, the, uh, I guess, uh, uh, 15 minutes or, or more, 120 minutes or so, uh, without really, I guess, getting a sense of what happens behind the scenes. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but before we go there, um, I mean, you, you grew up um, in Springfield, out in Durban, an industrial working class area. T- talk to me about, I guess, uh, where your journey and your love for film began. Yeah, thank you. You know, um, it was all about... Um, in those days, um, it, must, it was the mid-60s, mid uh, there was no television, um, you know, and I got to see 8 millimeter silent movies, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, you know, it was really something that captivated me because it was so funny, and you only watched it for like three minutes, and, um, and you were captivated in, in, a, in a magical way. To, um, to, a, to a place where, you know, everything was forgotten and you just enjoyed the moment. And uh, that's kind of the start of it all. And as I progressed um, to learn, to watch more films over the years, you know, it, it was really something that I felt um, moved by. And little did I know at the time that that was my career path, but it was certainly something that uh, I fell in love with. And, and, and then, of course, the journey from, you know, watching those uh, short reels to um, then running your own, I mean, in apartheid South Africa, running your own film distribution business. How does that happen? <laughs> uh, 
look, it wasn't, it, it, that was probably a 15-year period, but, or 20-year period, but mm. how it began was a passion for film, and while I was in school and um, over holidays and weekends, I used to work in a film rental store. In those days, you, you had no TV, so you rent a projector, you rent these big reels, and you take them home uh, much like you would have done with home video or DVD. But these were very cumbersome, and um, I used to work there. And as I was working, um, I sort of got to matric, and I studied. I was a very medium, not even a good student, um, just past matric, and wanted to go to film school, and the only film school in South Africa was in Pretoria. It was at that time for whites only. Um, they wouldn't take me, and um, I couldn't afford to go overseas. Uh, my father had just died I was 13, when I was 13 years old, and uh, decided, okay, well, I, I was forced, actually, by my mother and family to go to university, and I studied engineering and hated every minute of it. Um, what, all through that period, I was working in the store, uh, renting out films. Um, for now, by that point, I'd started earning like twenty-five rand a week, and that's you know during holidays, and that was sort of I guess the beginning of my entrepreneur entrepreneurial training. And at uh, while I was in my second year of university, uh, the the owners of that store, some white people, and the store was in downtown Durban, and um, which was, you know, reserved for whites. Everything you did in South Africa in those days, which cinema you went to, which restaurant you ate at, mm. which beach you went to, which school, and, of course, where you traded or where you lived was uh, segregated. Um, and so I, I was working in the store, and they said, we want to sell the store you want to buy it? And I said, well, hey, I'm 20 years old. Um, you know, I can't afford, I got no money. I've got nothing. Um, and they said, no, don't worry. You can pay us over 12 months. And um, I, I did a contract with them. I had to find a white friend of mine to sign the lease uh, because I couldn't do so. And that's kind of how it began. And um, okay. I went to the dean of my faculty and he said, you've got five more years to study. And uh, in five years' time, if you do well, maybe you'll earn 2,000 rand a month. And more importantly, at that time, there was something called a law, which was called mm. job reservation. Anant, I want us to pause for a second because we've got a spot break nearing on us. So, so I want us to pause here for a second. Let's take the spot break. When we come back, I want to hear what the dean said.
But I'm saying we have a responsibility, a social responsibility, and that's what's not being talked about. We have a responsibility as people in society, not people above society or away from society, who people are hipper than society, you know what I mean? But people in society whose job is to articulate life and to try to transform it. It's Thought Leader Thursday. Thought Leader Thursday on Metro FM Talk. It is indeed, and uh, our thought leader on this Thursday is a renowned filmmaker, storyteller, and uh, activist Anant Singh, and uh, he uh, joins us uh, this evening, I, I guess, uh, to talk briefly about uh, his work and life, uh, and uh, this on the back of uh, his recently released memoirs titled In Black and White. And uh, Anant, uh, we quickly had to take a spot break there, but uh, maybe come back to us to, uh, with that discussion you had with your dean, who said, look, you've got a few more years to study, and if you're lucky, you, you'll earn X amount of money. Um, yeah, it, it feels like uh, those... Uh trailers uh, in, uh, in the movies, you, you know, where you edit right there at a, at a hang, cliffhanger moment, and then you say, <laughs> okay, come back later, which is re- really cool. Uh, but anyway, he said, uh, you can get a job, and in those days there was a, a law called job reservation where a person, a white person got the job if you had the same qualification. Um, and uh, that was, uh, I just said to myself, you know, I'll take my chances in this movie uh, on uh, a possibility, and if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to engineering, which was the last time I visited. And did you ever meet him thereafter? Or not? <laughs> no, but uh, I would be curious. I would love to have met him to ask uh, what uh, what his view was, but uh, mm. no. I, I mean, this, look, this was 1976. 76, probably, sure. 77. Okay. Talk to me about the distribution work that you then later did. I mean, distributing, uh, I guess, you know, via or to the homelands, which uh, had a bit more, I guess, less of a Calvinist and less conservative bent about them in relation to uh, movies and the like, uh, you know, even the blue type of movies. Um, <laughs> I mean, just that journey for you, I, I found it very fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know, what happened was I was, by, because... Again, as I mentioned, cinemas were segregated. So, um, you know, you were buying, trying to release films that would be commercial. And, um, and one of the things is in order to make socially relevant or political like, uh, films like, like Place of Weeping, which was the first anti-apartheid film, mm. you know, you had to have means to fund these things. And... Uh, uh, while distributing movies, I think, you know, we acquired films to try and distribute in South Africa, and the law here was that a lot of the films were banned, uh, or they would ma- want you to make several cuts. And at that time, I could, you know, be able to rent out films to white people, but by law, even though I own the store, you know, through a nominee, um, I shouldn't be able to see that film. So it was quite bizarre, and I went to jail for showing the, the James Bond film *Live and Let Die* um, to a audience uh, to an audience uh, nearby near my home area. But mm. that being said, when these um, uh, resorts opened in the homelands, uh, a lot of the films that I tried to have released in South Africa, so from films that were like *Emmanuel*, which today plays on television, to Films like Eddie Murphy's Raw, in which, which was a stand-up comedy type of film, but you know he 
dealt with racism very brutally, well, not brutally, but honestly, mm. and, um, um, and those were all banned, and we got to play all these films in the homelands, and they drew enormous crowds because it was banned in South Africa, and it was sort of like a legal system, you know, of being able to do anything you couldn't do um, in those days of uh, apartheid in South Africa uh, and in the homeland areas. So mm. it was uh, uh, quite an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe, I mean, I guess, you know, we know we have to let you go in, in the next few minutes or so. Um, and I guess it might make for a perfect cliffhanger as well. Uh, but, you know, all of that, I guess, can't but help politicize you in very particular types of ways. Um, I mean, talk to me about the 1980s for you, in addition to what you've mentioned, you know, around crossing the Republic and to go and, you know, showcase some of uh, uh, the films that you were distributing, uh, but also, I guess, the interface with the political mood of the time. Yeah, and, you know, the 18th, or 80s was a fascinating time because that's when the productions, when I actually began production, and again, it was an industry reserved for white people. There were no people of color other than, you know, people working in labor or working in, uh, um, uh, in the cinemas and, uh, and you know, actors, some actors. And uh, many of them left the country also. So here I was starting to think about making movies. And uh, the, the companies that were, uh, were, were involved in movies at the time from the distributor, which is what is now Sterkinikor, but they were called different things at that time, wouldn't play my movies because they just were racist. And... Um, and the the other part of it was that I've go, I wanted to go into production, and so they wouldn't give me credit. They but they, if a white person came along, they would give the lab would give them credit. They would do whatever um, they they want want to sort of support their own. Um, anyway, I said, well, look, I've got to learn uh, learn this and do this and do it the hard way. Learn my lessons by hit and miss, and. That's how my first movie production career began. It began with a film that was in liquidation, and I bought that, and it was, didn't really work. And finally, around that same time, the, and Madiba and the ANC made a call against, uh, speak out against apartheid, whatever you can do. And there was a script that Daryl Root had written called Place of Weeping, and he brought that to me, and we said... I said to myself, well, this is a movie we have to make. It's an anti-apartheid movie. We're in a state of emergency. Let's be provocative. And Pinam Shlope was the lead actress. It was her first movie and first mm. uh, acting role outside stage. And we were doing it on the run from the police. And we had no choice but to just be proactive and ahead of the game. And they were harassing all of us. And um, we got the movie made. And then... To do, obviously, none of these cinemas would play it, so I got it profiled in America, got it to New York, Whoopi Goldberg, Martin Luther King uh, III, um, you know, a whole lot of celebrities, Sidney Poitier, all supported the film. And that gave it a sort of stat a status, and it got great reviews from, like, the New York Times and all these publications. And, and then we, I, I then publicized that and brought it back to South Africa, and finally the census, I had to appeal and get it passed, but then again, the irony of 
So director's white and I'm black and we couldn't even watch the movie in the same theater. So I went to Ayetu in Soweto and he went to Rosebank and, you know, we had dinner thereafter. That's how crazy it was. And maybe just the last question, I guess, in the post-apartheid era, because we're not going to go through everything that is in this rich uh, memoir of yours. Uh, I mean, talk to me about, you know, what um, uh, the environment has been. And I come back to the first question that I I asked you. I mean, you said it took, you know, decades to make uh, Long Walk to Freedom, the Mandela movie. Just for maybe the uninitiated might be listening to us who might not know what goes into making a film. Uh, talk to me about what goes into that and I guess how in the post-apartheid period uh, that has been different to, to what might have been the case during during apartheid. So when uh, well, I was writing to Madiba while he was in prison to try and make a movie of his life story because there was a biography written by Fatima Mir called Higher Than Hope. In any event, at that point, we started en- engaging in with letters about doing this. And he was very modest, saying, you know, who would want to watch a movie about me, etc. In any event, um, you know, we continued this communication, and um, fortunately, as these discussions were going on, two years later, he was going to be, he was released. So I got to meet him a few weeks after he was released, and he told me about the manuscript and the autobiography that he wrote and uh, that he smuggled out, to, they smuggled out of Robben Island mm. and said that um, uh, we should wait for that to be made as a movie. So again, this is now 1991. And, um, and I, I said, perfect. And when he did the manuscript, he gave, gave it to me and uh, granted me the rights to make a movie. And uh, I said to said Madiba, you know, this is, uh, an honor, but a huge challenge, and I'm terrified. But you know, but I'm going to give it my best shot. And he said, "I trust you. Go ahead." But little did I imagine that it was going to take another twenty some odd years to get made, because it's such a rich life and mm. and such a complex. You know, I could have made ten one hour, a ten series, a ten episode series. But at that time, we I wanted to do a feature film. I've been through. And writers, maybe the same number of directors, 80 scripts, um, because I just didn't feel it was right. And Madiba was very gracious and very patient, um, and um, said, "Don't worry, that don't you don't have to rush." Um, and uh, he said, "Show me for my weaknesses more than my strength." Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the kind of process that evolved. And finally, in around 2009, 2010, it all was starting, come, starting to come together. Um, and, you know, the relationship with Madiba was one part of it. And I had also had a, a, a close relationship with Winnie uh, and also with uh, Zanani and Zinzi. Um, so it was very important for the family to be supportive, but... Mm. All through the process, I've said to Madiba and to Winnie, especially, that, you know, I'm going to be honest about the story um, and showing their weaknesses and problems, etc. And obviously, you know, that makes you stronger um, in, in the way you come across. And I think Winnie was a little apprehensive at the time, but when I showed her the film, the two of us watched it together. She turned to me, gave me a kiss and said, 
thank you, I love it, and that was that, you know. So I'm very proud that we were able to get the film made, get him, get to show him some of it mm. before he had passed on. And as we come up on Sunday this week is um, the, I think it's the eighth anniversary of his passing. Um, you know, that day of the 5th of December was a very um, sort of bittersweet moment for me because that was the London premiere of the film mm. and Zinzi and Zanani were with me. And... Um, we had the royals there, and uh, that was while the movie was playing. Was the night he passed on, so um, mm. it's quite something. Yeah, Anand, thank you so for so generously sharing of your time tonight. And uh, uh, maybe just the last one is: where can we get hold of this memoir uh, that is certainly riveting reading? Uh, thank you, Ayabonga. It's uh, available at bookstores all all around the country. It's available at um, uh, exclusive. Uh, Bargain books online take a lot. I guess all the usual places where you find books. Uh, I hope that your um, uh, listeners find it uh, interesting and entertaining, especially young people. Um, and uh, thank you. Anand Singh, thank you very much for your time. Bye. That there was uh, Anand Singh, a renowned and a preeminent filmmaker. Uh, activist and storyteller and uh, yeah uh, very riveting account there in that memoir of his in black and white uh, 24 minutes it is now uh, before 9 p.m let's take this let's take this brief break excuse me and uh, we'll certainly come back on the other side south africa we are under lockdown stay alert download the covert alert essay app free of charge every download means more lives saved hashtag we are in this together hashtag metro fm cares metro fm talk this is metro fm talk but where i was born is not where i'm from and where I'm from is not my home. So when the tribes gather, I often wonder, who will I fight when you're both my brothers? Nobody asked when we were children. Before we play, are you a Muslim? We shared a space that nobody claimed, but now you ask me to choose a side. When we were students, nobody asked if North and South could share a desk, if East and West could study together, but now you tell me that I'm a stranger. Stranger, yes, to these ways of thinking. Thinking that tribe is everything. The Niger and Benue, they meet in my hand. I'm not an indigent, but this is my land. And this is my... And this is my language, I speak nothing else. My home is here, I know nothing else. My tribe is my nation, I am nothing else. And this is my country, I have nowhere else. And so, though people are quick to assure me, to tell me this country I live in is free, deep in my heart, I know that freedom my freedom is yet to come when no one will question my origin, when no one will call me a non-indigent, when no one will kill me because of my faith, when no one will cheat me because of my state, when my state will be wherever I live and will change whenever I choose to move, the day I find not a Nigerian president, but that a Nigerian is finally president. Ayabonga Tawe on Metro FM Talk. Send your voice notes to Metro FM Talk. 079-199-4270. Aya, aya. Unjan Fitz. Yeah, Manish. I just want to highlight on this story of killing Usisine. Uh, I think uh, they've been very lenient to Uputine. 
because just imagine mesle science le ne kusam ayenzile as cutting somebody into pieces and then suddenly get 25 years um i uh, uh personally i don't think uh, there is some justice there i felt he should have got uh, more than that thank you i doing good show brother yeah i mean i i have the same view um insofar as this matter is concerned i mean i think 25 years and there's so many things that are being uncovered now um that are revolving around this i mean from the fact that he is now seemingly you know seeing flashes of her in his jail cell and we also now get a sense that all of this was done in a fit of jealous rage so i, I don't know man um, you know this